As some of you might know, as I've mentioned it in previous articles and even in the beginning of previous interviews, before I get rolling with an executive, particularly kind of C-level folks, I often kind of tee up my interviews by saying, you know, these are not infomercials and the goal is to educate the audience. And similarly, we really do need to separate what the technology can do from what we hope it can do, drawing a firm line between what's possible today and what can happen in the future. As many of you know who are listening, a lot of AI in the press is CMOs or marketing people or communications people talking about what a company can do in a way that really is aspirational. They're speaking about what they can do But in reality, the things that they're talking about, the capabilities won't be unlocked for maybe a year or more. These are just things on the technology roadmap, but we speak about them like they exist now. And by golly, I mean, our podcast listeners tune in to escape that. They tune in to get an honest objective. Where the heck do we stand? Don't BS me. Don't exaggerate perspective on AI. And and we fight hard to be polite, but ensure that that is in fact the case. And this week's interview, I think we really nailed that on the head. We have a tremendous number of transferable lessons about bringing AI into existing businesses from this episode, and also a very kind of soup to nuts, current state-of-the-art perspective on on artificial intelligence and customer service that was brought to bear. And I was really happy with it. Um, We interview this week Aminash Tripathi, who is the founder and chief strategy officer of a company called HelpShift. They've raised upwards of $40 million in the last six years to apply artificial intelligence to the future of customer service. And we speak about the hard challenges of chatbots and conversational interfaces and how long it's going to be until those are actually robust. But we also talk about where AI can augment and make a difference in existing customer service workflows. So even if we can't have all capable chatbots to handle banking or insurance or e-commerce questions from folks, where can AI pretty easily slide its way in and actually make a difference today? Drawing a firm line on where the technology currently stands, Avinash does a great job of kind of highlighting what those capabilities are and the real challenges of upgrading conversational interfaces to get to a higher level and just what it's going to take and how many years he thinks it's going to take to get there. And I think it's going to put a lot of cold water in a good way on folks who are maybe a little bit too naive about what chatbots are literally capable of today. What I'm most happy about with this interview is actually the latter part of the interview. As all of you know, transferable lessons is the point of AI in industry. I record these episodes because I want to draw on the broad capability space of AI, understanding firmly what is doable today and what is actually working and delivering ROI today so that you can look at your own business in whatever dark corner, whatever department you're in, and figure out how it might make its way into what you do in the future of your company, the future of your role. We go into a big theme there with Avinash at the end of this interview, where we talk about the challenges of actually innovating in AI. We talk about why it really is the big companies that do a lot of the actual cutting edge breakthroughs of AI and why us smaller folks often are going to have to be kind of licensing those libraries, those technologies, that code, maybe even in some cases sort of those data sets from the big folks, from the Amazons, from the Googles, potentially from the Facebooks of the world, and why companies maybe need to have a realistic expectation about where they can apply AI and about why actually innovating at the level of the science and coming up with new capabilities on their own, even if you're a global pharma company or a global bank, might just be wholly unreasonable given your compute, given your data, and given the culture of innovation and the density of talent in your firm and that the firms like Amazon and Google just have such a a firm hold on that. And that might not be a bad thing, but it's a reality we need to digest 
wow, do I think that's an important lesson. We did a whole article called Why Facebook and Google Dominate AI Innovation. That's just on emerj.com. That's on emerge.com. Very popular on social media. Abhinash just knocked it out of the park with that dynamic. I enjoyed this interview a lot. I had fun with it. We went over time, but I liked it. I'm going to curb my enthusiasm and just roll right into it. But if you're interested in the future of customer service and the present of AI and customer service, and you want to understand a realistic bounding box for what your company, whether you're you know, a publicly traded firm or mid-sized company, can realistically accomplish with AI in the near term, tune in. So this is Abinash with HelpShift. I am Dan Fagella with Emerge, and you are listening to AI in Industry. Let's dive in. So Abinash, where I wanted to start is where we usually start, which is what's possible today? Customer service and support is sort of your domain. I think that Maybe people have visions of when voice and chatbots are going to take that over. Uh, but in terms of where AI can can make a tangible difference in business now in the customer service side of things, talk about what AI's capabilities are at present. Dan, thank you. I think we want to stay very focused on what is possible here now. And really, if you look at where AI is from a maturity curve standpoint, the kind of problems that it's really able to solve well in a contact center or in a, in a customer service operations is things like classification of a incoming conversation and extraction of intents and using that to route a conversation to the right bot or an agent. But we'll come back to the bot topic. Uh, There's so much hype around bots and the way bots have been uh, implemented they don't really work because most of the bots that you see, the first generation bots that went out, uh, were conversational bots that were supposed to pass a Turing test, and they cannot sustain any form of long, you know, back and forth. Yep. And they're just not ideal. So you take. So we'll we'll park that discussion. We'll come back to that. So I think one of the cool. big, you know, problems in customer service today is, you know, that customers come in, they want help with a certain topic. And they need to be connected to the right individual who is skilled, who is available. And there's a lot of, you know, intelligence around just routing to the right person so the the person at the other end can get served well. And AI is very good at doing classification, right, and extraction of intent based on just sort of a, you know, a few sentences or a few, you know, words, spoken words. But it's not good at maintaining a sustained conversation the way you and I are are communicating right now, right? And that's yeah, where yeah, it all. all falls apart, where people are trying to apply it to replace a human and try to sustain a long, drawn-out conversation. It's also being used in other places where very well for things like matching knowledge assets that a company has to a specific question that comes in in customer service. So, you know, Customer service typically always starts with a question. Help me with something. I don't know this, right? And once the classification can happen with the AI, where it, it has extracted sort of the intents that the, the the core intents that the customer has, then the company can apply those intents to knowledge assets, which are locked away in sort of, you know, content management systems, FAQs, help centers, there's a whole bunch of curated content that a company publishes that are knowledge articles and sometimes customers will eat them. So matching that, you know, and, and presenting that to the user without them having to go and ask a human or dig around in a help center 
is also a solved problem in the customer service industry now. And it is actually yielding a lot of results because, you know, customers are able to 80% of the questions that come into customer service are very simple questions that, that can be answered through a knowledge asset. And if you can do that very effectively, you're basically blocking that from becoming a human ticket or a ticket that has to, or a case that has to be handled by a human being. Yeah. So deflection uh, by matching intents to knowledge that is locked away in sort of data silos is also a solved problem in, in customer service today. Cool. And maybe we can, if you don't mind, can we just poke into an example of that with you a little bit? Or just like talk about maybe how that works? I think when people hear you say knowledge asset, not everybody's familiar with what you're saying. In my mind, I'm imagining, oh, cool. So, you know, we've got a big FAQ kicking around somewhere. We've got some Google Doc about parking policies or something. We've got, uh, uh, I don't know, some desperate random website that has, you know, terms and conditions on XYZ QRS. And we figure out what people are asking and we somehow match it to, you know, slots and segments of things that we've sliced and diced to be kind of findable through these common prompts. This is sort of what I'm imagining, but yeah, I have a bad vision of it. No, I I think you're right on. So the knowledge in customer service is typically locked in sort of a help center, which is available on the company's website. The help center typically has a bunch of like FAQ questions and, you know, it, it is presented to the user through a portal. Most customers don't go there first. They, it's easier. I mean, people just want to you know, ask a question because it's easier, right? Yeah. They don't, yeah. No one wants to go to an FAQ and scroll through 20 pages or whatever. Right. So basically, these FAQs, or the, these knowledge portals are so hard to use that it's easier for someone to ask a question. And so people go ask these questions. And the way the current customer service industry is set up is that any question that a customer asks goes directly to a human. And it creates work for human beings and uh, it creates all kinds of experience problems because once something is routed to a human, it's going to take time. The human's not going to be available to answer right away. They're going to be busy with other things and they'll eventually get to it. And by that time, the customer is frustrated that it was such a slow, you know, slow process. And so where AI can help is that it, it matches the content in an available sort of public knowledge base and is able to present that as a response, as a suggested response to the question. And customers, once they read that, they're like, okay, this answers my question. They go away. If it doesn't, they can escalate that to a human agent, right? So that these are very solved problems today. Got it. And in terms of prepping to make that possible, I guess my assumption would be we would probably need, and again, you're going to be able to correct me on this, but mm-hmm. we would probably need some big historical backlog of all questions kind of ever asked, maybe. Um, and then we would need probably a good deal of manual effort. Maybe what we've done in the past is we've had humans on these chats with these with these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had our own human customer support people. And they've gone ahead and they've gone to the FAQ and they've copied and pasted or they've clicked a button and it automatically copies and pastes and it sends the person the snippet that they need. And then we yeah. have, you know... Uh, 200,000 instances of humans clicking and auto-snippeting responses to sets of questions. And then what ends up happening is we train a system to say, I have a 90% confidence that this question needs to be responded to with this template 
bam. And if it's, let's say, below an 80% threshold, then it sends it to a human and says, hey, I don't really know what this is. You please respond, human. But maybe the machine can handle, let's say, I don't know, 70%, 80% of the instances. Um, this is my mind. It's probably a bit more nuanced than that. Let me know if, if we're on yeah, the same Yeah, actually, you're, you're on the right track. Uh, there are just a couple of sort of things that I want to enlighten you about. So yes, human beings, even agents sitting inside a call center, just think about most of the agents working in the customer service industry. Um, they're either high school dropouts or just haven't don't have the highest level of education. Yep. They are given sort of scripts, and these scripts are, you know, if you face this scenario, ask these questions, respond with these sorts of answers. And yes, you're right. They basically are are dipping into a database or a knowledge asset like a you know the company's internal sort of FAQ or even the public FAQ copying snippets and responding to customers with those snippets, right? So that's, you're right there. Now, the way AI is basically changing that and the way we've sort of implemented our solution is that basically once you, you said that you need a lot of data, maybe all the transcripts from the past to train the AI, um, that is not really needed. Uh, if you have gone about building a, an AI that, that doesn't have that much of cold start problem. One of the problems with AI today is the cold start problem. How do I train the AI and how does it have enough you know, data so it can, so the accuracy or the precision and the recall are high, right? And so the cold start is a pretty big problem, but there's a lot of advances that have happened recently in the field of NLP or natural language processing. And there are specific algorithms that, when used creatively, can actually classify with high confidence with very little data. So just to give you an example, our classification engine that basically extracts intent of an incoming question leverages two statistical models and one sort of shallow learning. I won't call it deep learning model, right? The minute you say deep learning, you need lots of data. Shallow learning where your your network is one layer deep uh, doesn't need a lot of data, right? And it can build a model based on sparse data. So we use an ensemble of these three algorithms. And for a single intent, we require only 100 examples. So if you're able to provide the machine learning engine 100 examples per label, you're good to go. And you get to a fairly high level of accuracy right out of the box. We sort of force supervised learning just because we want the AI to be very specific to the customers that use us and to be able to yeah, operate you, on yeah, their vocabulary. Yeah, totally, we, yep. And if we didn't, we could have run this entire model unsupervised and still got accuracy levels at the in the 80% range. Because the model that we're using, the NLP algorithms that we're using, work fairly well, uh, and it's an NLP-based match, right? And all we're doing with these 100 examples is fine-tuning the NLP model to understand vocabulary that's specific to that customer or to that domain, right? So AI has come to a point where, uh, a point of maturity where the cold start problem is not uh, specifically for text-based NLP it's not that big of a problem. If you're doing like things like image recognition, yes. Yeah. You need yeah, a lot we get a of bigger data. challenge. Or yep. text-based. Yeah, it's you know, nice to start with symbols. Yeah. Yes. Simplifies so, things, right? There's yeah. So we we focused on 
you know, the the simple wins where customers are able to see, you know, 90, 95% accuracy within like a few days of launching their classification engine, right? And uh, so, so bold, our technology- bold, bold claims, my tender chap, bold claims, but I'll- uh... I can't can't go on without at least jumping in there. But yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, well, it it is bold claims, but it's also, it's not that we haven't gone to the deep end, right? And tried to boil the ocean. We've tried to keep it very simple that. Yeah, yeah. Hit a use case you can knock out of the park. That makes sense. I mean, from a vendor perspective, it makes sense. So from a customer's open-ended question, pick a key intent that they're trying to solve and just create a label for that, right? So that's a very simple use of AI. Yep. So we haven't boiled the ocean. We're not building this. NLP based bot that can yeah, general intelligence or something. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that does not work. It's not going to work. And there you're seeing accuracy levels in the 30 to 40% range. Yeah. That's such a tough place to be that conversational world. Right. Um, I, I guess maybe the second part of the convo here, if you're ready to pivot, if you still had a couple nuggets there, I'm happy to dive in by the way, but I'm just wary of, of time here in terms of getting to a more conversational place you know, what do you think is going to get us over those hurdles? You know, you're working on these low hanging fruit problems very hard. And even then it's not easy stuff. I mean, you guys have raised a lot of money. You got a bunch of, you know, PhD folks working with you. You know, what is the path to that more immersive second question, third question, still hitting it nail on the head? You know, for me, I look at it and I say, geez, that's a tough problem. We need a lot of volume. We need people with a lot of volume. We need like a lot of oversight and, and and labeling probably. And maybe we even need some kind of core upgrade in how machine learning works. Like maybe the, the, the tech today, just the broad statistical kind of matching we have today with the, the quote unquote natural language understanding that we have today just doesn't cut it to get to question number three. What do you think is the bridge, uh, Avinash? What's going to get us there? I think time, time is the bridge and patience. And so you take... You know, practical companies like Amazon, right? They probably have uh, the most NLP assets in the world. The Lex team that is building the Lex platform for Alexa has the most number of PhDs in the NLP field working on solving sort of the natural language understanding, natural language reasoning, you know, natural language generation. These are all, you know, subfields of NLP that, you know, are still in very research kind of phases. And and they're they're on the problem. And you see like companies like Google, you know, they're also on the problem. They're they have a lot of researchers who are basically trying to solve this problem, but it's gonna take time. It's just not there today. And so you take a practical company like Amazon, they've been very, very careful that they've got this Lex platform, they use you know Lex to power Alexa, and they've built these consumer sort of devices that people can use in their homes with very limited sort of use cases, like playing music or, you know, turning off or on the lights, you know, very simple command-based vocabulary. And it's sort of working there, right? You have to train a skill for Alexa and and it sort of works. Now, where Amazon has been really careful is they've not deployed any of this technology in their customer service chat. So if you really look at the customer service channels, whether it's the phone channel or whether it is the chat experience that Amazon provides, uh, in their mobile app, they've just not gone there because they know that the technology is not ready. The worst thing you want is an Apple Maps or a Siri-like experience where Apple launched a product before it was ready technically, and customers, even though the product's improved, it's been three years 
or four years since that product was launched and it's improved a lot, it's caught up with Google, people don't use Apple. They don't trust it because it didn't work the first time, right? And the same thing happened with Siri. I mean, Siri is on everybody's phone and it still doesn't work. And, you know, people use it for very simple things. And it's not something that can sustain, you know, the promise that it will be able to, that you can talk to this virtual assistant and it can do anything for you. is just not, it has not happened. It's not been realized, right? So we have to be very careful. Basically, what it's going to take is time. A lot of problems have to be solved. A lot of researchers have to work on these hard problems. And it's going to be, you know, a substantial amount of time. I don't think it's going to get solved in the next five years, I don't see it. Uh, oh, really? Okay, so yeah. you, you would even say, you know, 2024, January 2024 rolls around. You would say someone who's buying something online, you know, maybe it's like shoes or maybe they're talking to their bank. You know, we may still only be looking at one or two low-hanging fruit questions that are chatbotted and then we're getting bumped to a human being or or somewhere else that, that you, you would not estimate. Yeah, it doesn't have to be yeah. a, you're a human being. So the way we've solved the okay. problem is that we've created a bot platform that is much simpler than a conversational bot. Our bot platform is what I would call a, it's like a, you know, a button bot where you can build a decision tree that asks a set of questions. And instead of giving it open-ended text or unstructured text responses, we allow the user to pick from buttons or option lists and use that to drive them through a decision tree and, and provide the answer. And Amazon does exactly the same thing. If you go look at Amazon's customer service chat experience and the bot that they've deployed there, their bot doesn't try to understand what you're trying to say in words. Uh, it's presenting you a menu-driven sort of experience inside a messaging experience where you can navigate to a resolution path, right? And so we think today those are working really well. And at some point, uh, the conversational bot technology will get to the point where the accuracy levels are very high. And then we can shift from these sort of, you know, decision tree bots to a more uh, human-like conversational bot. Yeah, man. So time, patience, and it sounds like just a, a lot of kind of technical and data hurdles to get to what we're still kind of painfully articulating as a human-like conversation. Yes. I mean, there's yeah, a ton of yeah. work that's being done. So the Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of effort here. That's NLP exciting. NLP Lab is doing a ton of work. Uh, the deep learning folks in the Canada, Toronto area, Pittsburgh area. I mean, there's, a, there's huge hubs of research. London, England, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. These are all the hubs where all the PhDs are hanging out, trying to solve really complex problems. Most of them are... Uh, in academia, but right now AI is so hot that industry is hiring a bunch of academicians and giving them sort of 50-50 roles where they can do 50% academic work, 50% industry work. And so there's a lot of flexibility being offered to AI researchers. And what I really like is that the way the industry, the tech industry has gone about this whole AI shift is that instead of going and hiring those resources full-time, and, and capturing them into captive sort of tactical projects in, in these companies, you know, Google's and Facebook's of the world have allowed academicians to be, to be able to participate in academia and do research and work on real world problems at the same time. And I think that's going to basically drive 
a lot of innovation in the next few years. And we, we will get to a point where conversational bots using text will probably be solved much sooner than voice. Voice is much harder. You know, speech recognition has been around for for decades now, and it hasn't even gotten to the point where, you know, you a few companies have deployed speech recognition in their phone-based customer service, right? Most of it doesn't work. So most companies have given up on speech recognition and they don't use it in the customer service scenario because most of the time it ends up frustrating customers because they they really can't get, I mean, they're stuck in sort of these conversation loops with these speech rec platforms and and they're not perfect, right? So yeah, so I think speech recognition and voice has long ways to go. We yeah. saw some cool demos from Google with Duplex, and that was pretty cool. I yeah, I but, wasn't. We no one was sure how smoky, mirrory kind of you know because it was a very controlled to some yeah, degree. Yeah. I mean, setup right. So use case for a very narrow use case, Google yeah a model right, and the kind of compute resources that Google has to train a model like that are pretty big. Are are massive, right? And and other companies in the world don't have those kinds of resources. Um, <laughs> no, right? So the compute. So one of the yeah. big problems with with these sort of deep learning models is the amount of compute and the amount of data you need. And both Amazon and Google have both. They have data, right? Because they run very large consumer services that generates a ton of data. Amazon's call center is one of the largest in the world, so they have hours and hours of voice recording. Google rolled out free voice services called Hangout, and they have tons of voice recording, yep. right? Yeah, okay, and you're right, yeah. They both have data, and they both compute, and they're able to solve the problem for themselves. Now, if other brands and companies that don't have the data, have the compute, try to solve it, they're just not going to be able to. Yeah. So you got you got to pick you got to pick your beachhead if you're a smaller firm and hopefully there will be a lot of progress on the little beachheads and hopefully the big folks will also solve the big problems and over time we'll kind of get there. That's kind of the takeaway I'm getting from you. Yeah, the nice thing is both Google and Amazon are in the cloud business, which means whatever innovation they whatever breakthroughs they can sell it back to us. Yeah, yeah. whatever breakthroughs they have in the science world, right? So the researchers crack the code on, you know, let's say conversational, you know, text-based conversational AI, right? They will quickly turn around, throw it on their cloud platforms, whether it's AWS or Google Cloud, and open it up to the world of small companies to take advantage of or brands to take advantage of, right? So I think where we're going to see a lot of the AI breakthroughs come is from, from sort of the labs that are now working with these large consumer companies like Amazon and Google, and they will democratize it so quickly because to them, they will take these innovations and just sell them as a service. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Well, uh, worst case scenario, I guess we'll have to, we'll have to take it from our, the lords above us uh, when, they, when they make the innovations. Uh, but hopefully there will also be startups that make their own puncture holes in the cutting edge science and can solve some unique problems as well. But yeah, I guess the, the point is, thankfully, it's not like it'll be locked up away forever when the innovation happens. It'll just be another revenue stream. Well, don't hold your breath for startups, right? So there will be breakthrough innovation that startups do, but it'll be mostly in the use of AI, not in the core algorithms, right? Startups will mostly figure out how to use the breakthroughs to solve specific vertical problems. But my my read on the market is that the major breakthroughs will only come from the larger 
consumer oriented companies, yeah. right? Because they have the data, they have the compute, they have the resources in terms of researchers. Yep. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and to solve all the AI problems, that's what you need. And startups just don't have the resources. They don't have the compute. Uh, it's too expensive. They don't have the data set. And even companies yeah. like IBM, I mean, they've been struggling because they don't have any sort of consumer. The data. Yeah, they don't yeah, have. They don't. They don't get to drink up all the data. Their data science, yep. right? Uh, who would have known, though? You know, when they first started getting into AI, who would have known? Like, that's the best way to skin the cat. You know, well, it's it, like in the '60s and '70s or whatever. It's tough to blame them. I guess we probably can blame them, but tough, tough where the science went. You know, it bent away from where they were. Well, no, data. Data is the new oil, right? So, yeah. whoever has the data wins. And so IBM, unfortunately, put themselves in a position where they didn't move to the cloud. They couldn't, they didn't launch any consumer service. And so they don't have the volume of data that a Google or an Amazon or an Apple or a Microsoft has, right? Even Microsoft, if you think about it, uh, is a consumer company. They've got products that are consumer oriented. They've got Skype. They've got hours and hours of recording on Skype, right? They've got the data that they can apply into their data science and IBM unfortunately became an island because they did not build any consumer products. They didn't build any cloud products. They have no access to data. Uh, they are mostly an on-prem solution working on little islands and that doesn't oh, help man, your data yeah. science mission, right? Uh, the, the gods frowned upon them. The gods frowned upon them. They, uh, they, they were steering one way, but yeah, didn't, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the blame out of their hands entirely, but yeah, tough, tough scenario that they've been in. Kind yeah, of a well, non sequitur to some to degree, their, but yeah, their, I think this and, is. And to their detriment, they hyped Watson to the point where, you know, it was it meaningless. Was, yeah, it was it was meaningless, right? I mean, basically, yeah. it just fell on its face. Watson could not stand up to the hype. <sighs> yep, a cry, a crying shame. I still have my fingers crossed for him. I got nothing but respect for Big Blue, but it's a different world, and uh, that data is uh, is the real stuff. And, you know, the frankness of being able to say as a startup that, yeah, the cutting edge science innovation is probably not going to happen here. That's, uh, that's, that's frank. I respect that. And I think the people tuned in need to listen. I think a lot of people think, you know, if we could get a couple data scientists, we could maybe solve X problem. But if you think about it, and that's in voice, so that's in text, and Google hasn't solved that problem, you're not solving that problem. Right. And, and, and I think a lot of people have to hear that. Oh, here's a business problem. Yeah, I guess nothing exists for this. Well, if we could get some data scientists. It's like, buddy, man, if, that, <laughs> if Google hasn't solved it, like, no, you're, you're in real trouble. So we, we recently did an article about why Facebook and Google and companies like them dominate the domain of AI innovation and talked about all these various and sundry factors. And I think people make assumptions that you know, if they just made a couple hires and had, you know, six or nine months to work at it, they could finally make a machine understand these text prompts. They could finally make a machine understand these images. But it's like, uh, ooh, no, you know, that's there's super, some harsh that's realities. That's super naive, Dan. Yeah, so, it is. You know, <laughs> if you really look at AI, there's core AI, which is the algorithms that solve specific problems, right? And the math and the stats and the science behind it. And then there's applied AI, which is how do you take all of these algorithms and build uh, or solve sort of real world problems, right? So what I'm alluding to is that the Amazons and the Googles and the Microsofts and the Apples of the world will basically solve the science part of AI, right? They will be the big winners in algorithms because they have the resources, which is human you know, researchers. 
the compute and the data to go solve the science part of AI. Now, what startups will do, like us, right? They will basically take all of these algorithms that get pumped out and figure out how to apply them to specific business cases. So it's the application of AI. So I call it applied AI, right? And so most of the startups that you will see emerge will be just applied AI companies. They won't be core AI companies. Yeah. Well, and I think that's an important distinction, right? It's a really important distinction to understand. And if a, if a company, you know, an enterprise, you know, I still very much discourage, you know, the small and mid-sized folks from, from having any thoughts about AI innovation at all. Um, but the enterprises that, that hire enough of these folks and can fix their cultures enough to actually leverage AI, even for them, you know, like I'm thinking about pharma companies or whatever else, I still feel like at least in the near future here, it's the same kind of, you know, applied AI is kind of where you're going to get inside of, let's say, some airplane division of GE, inside of some, you know, some some pharma division of, of Roche or, or Bayer or something. I still feel like you're not probably necessarily going to be expecting to crush the, the hard science in places like that. Is it the same to assume in enterprises as it is? I know they have more resources than startups. They also have stodgier cultures. Do you think, as a closing note, that the same applied rule works as a general rule across what we can expect from enterprises too, or is that different? Yeah, I think you're you're on the right path. Basically, what will happen is that specific industries like telecoms, like pharma, they have lots of data, right? So they they own the data, but they don't have a culture of hiring scientists, especially computer scientists and researchers to go and solve you know, AI problems. And they're probably going to succeed by taking platforms like Google's and Amazon, where the algorithms are getting created every day yeah, exactly. and, and applying them to their data, right? So that's the shift that will happen. So telecom companies, pharmas, anybody that has lots of data uh, will will use sort of these commercial clouds that are out there, the AI clouds, right? The Amazon and the Google clouds. And then use those algorithms to solve specific problems. Very few will be able to go innovate and like go create their own sort of, you know, algorithms, right? So that's, that's yeah. just w- the way I see the world going. Got it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll wrap on that. I know we went off on this whole extra bent around the challenges of actual innovation, but I, uh, I'm not going to lie, Abhinash. I, I actually think that was a pretty interesting little left turn we took there. And hopefully the audience enjoyed that one as well. Lots of stuff to chew on here in terms of customer service and also in terms of grounding expectations. Um, So that's all we have for time. Avinash, I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights here on AI and industry. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was great talking to you. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from 
marketing and advertising, business intelligence to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.